Hello, my name is Meg. Welcome to the Unedited Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. The goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. About 20 years ago, at a very low spot in my life, I was convicted to begin this simple discipline, and I looked up years down the road to see how God had used this habit to heal deep places in my heart and mind. So over the years, it's really become my greatest passion to help others get to know Jesus through His Word and through His presence. Through this podcast, I'm hoping to help you see the Word of God with fresh eyes, to learn to slow down with your Bible, and ultimately to fall in love with your Bible. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so incredibly glad to have you here. You know, I always say that the goal of this podcast is to help you both develop and enjoy the habit of daily Bible reading and prayer. But I just wanted to also say that the goal of this podcast is to give hope, to bring encouragement into dark places, because that is what the Word of God does. And so that is an additional goal of this podcast, and I just felt to speak that out into the atmosphere today. Today we're going to talk about the authority of the Word of God, and I am going to be borrowing some points from a Bible study intro lesson that was written by my pastor, Joseph Hanthorne. I am going to link to this on the website. So if you go to podcasts and entries on the website, there will be a link to this particular lesson in its entirety. It's a powerful lesson. The entire Bible is a incredibly remarkable book. And we have talked about the proof for Bible engagement in previous episodes. I would encourage you to look at the statistics from the Center for Bible Engagement. The scientific verifiable proof for what the Word of God does in a life is remarkable. But there's other amazing factors that prove the authority of the Word of God. And I just felt to establish this the enemy is always questioning the word of God. The very first time we see Satan in the Bible, we see him coming to Eve and saying, has God surely said? And that is what the enemy does. He's always attacking the character of God, the motives of God, God's goodness, and God's word. And he still does that with us today. And he asks us, has God surely said? And the world will tell us that the Bible is a book of fables, or that is allegories, but the word of God stands the test of time and his word is forever settled and his word is true, we can take it to the bank. Obviously we understand there are cultural things that would affect maybe how our understanding of how something was written, but it is not allegories, it is truth. So the entire Bible has been translated into more than 700 languages, and the New Testament has been translated into over 1,500 languages, which is incredible. You compare that to the Quran, which is 47 languages, or the Book of Mormon, which has been translated into 110 languages. It is the bestseller of all time. It's the most printed and most distributed book in the world, and I would refer you back to an episode that I did several months ago called You Don't Have to, You Get to, We talked about the people who have given their lives for the translation of the gospel, for the preservation of the word of God, and for its final authority. 
The Bible is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness. And that word inspiration in that verse means God breathed. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible is not man's book about God. It is God's revelation of himself as men wrote under the influence and anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there is a lot of evidence for the authority of the word of God. It is supernatural in origin. You can find proof in archaeology. The Dead Sea Scrolls is a prime example of this. Uh, Years ago, I think it was about 15 years ago, uh, there was an exhibit that came through the Milwaukee Public Museum. So incredible. If you've never researched the Dead Sea Scrolls, I would encourage you to to do some research. They were found in the 1940s and 1950s by some, or a Bedouin shepherd boy who was throwing rocks into a cave and heard something break. And there are massive amounts of scrolls, fragments of scrolls. In fact, they just recently, I believe it was in March of last year, found some new fragments of scrolls proving the the changes to the word of God have been so minuscule. There's the Isaiah scroll, which is an entire um, copy of the book of Isaiah. Very, very fascinating and huge proof. Outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a lot of other archaeological proof for locations that are mentioned in the word of God, for things that are mentioned in the word of God. Um, There's actually something called the Archaeological Study Bible, which is really interesting a lot of different facts and a lot of different findings that you can see in there. Science proves the word of God. For years, men thought the earth was flat. But if you go back to the word of God, Job talks about the, how the earth hangs on nothing. And Isaiah talks about the circle of the earth. There's other things in the law as it relates to health standards that God put into his law in ancient times. And we in modern times can stand by those and say those are good health practices. Those will stop the spread of disease. So there's a lot of proof in science. Divine agreement is another proof for the authority and the validity of the word of God. There's over 40 writers that wrote over 1,500 years of writing. And if you think about if you put me in a room writing something that I had seen or writing about the events of my life or you asked me to write about a particular topic and you put somebody in a room 200 years ago and asked them to write about that topic, you're not going to have a lot of agreement because there's going to be a lot of uh, things that relate to the culture that we grew up in. There's going to be a lot of things that wouldn't necessarily agree because of our life experiences, even though we're writing about the same topic. But the word of God does not disagree with itself. And one writer will corroborate what another writer says hundreds of years apart. So again, divine agreement, fulfilled prophecy. This is massive. There are 400 fulfilled prophecies that were written in the Old Testament about the life of Jesus, and he fulfilled them all. There's a man named Josh McDowell, who was an atheist, 
and set out on a journey basically to disprove the Bible. And in his studies and in his pursuit as he was traveling, he found many proofs for the word of God and he's become a passionate um, person in supporting the validity and the authority of the word of God. But one of the things that was really like a clincher for him was prophecy and fulfilled prophecy. And he said that a verified analysis was conducted by the American Scientific Affiliation that concluded that the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person is one in, I don't even know what this number is. I've never been able to figure that out, but it has a ton of zeros behind it. And Jesus fulfilled so many more than eight prophecies. And so again, prophecy is a huge, huge, huge proof for the word of God. The Bible also prophesies that Israel is going to be dissolved and reunited. And we know that that did happen. The nation of Israel was dissolved. And I believe it was 1948 that it was reunited as a nation. The word of God is not only proved by prophecy and the other things that we've mentioned, but it is indestructible. There has been attack after attack on the word of God, regimes that have burned Bibles, the communist party that now does not allow the ownership of Bibles, but it has stood the test of time, irregardless of every attack that has been leveled against it. And then there's the witness of our testimony. I can tell you the word of God is true because I have experienced the power of the word of God in my life. You could not convince me that the word of God is not true. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And each of us is personally or personally accountable to the word of God. In John 12, 48, Jesus said, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And when I die, I'm going to stand before God and it's going to be him and me and his word. And did my life measure up to his word? His word is the final authority. His word does not bend with culture. It does not bend with time. It does not morph to our standards. We must conform to its commands and its standards. And so if the Bible is God's revelation of himself, then that means that it must be the final authority over our life. And if we see something in the word of God, we must walk in obedience to it. If we see a promise in the word of God, we can trust it. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so from that verse, we know there is a right way to divide the word of God and a wrong way to divide the word of God. And each one of us has to dig down into the scriptures and see what it says about salvation, about how to live our lives, about how to walk in relationship with Jesus. And in coming episodes, I'm going to actually do a Bible overview. We're going to talk about how to properly interpret the Bible But again, I just wanted to establish, it felt so strongly in my spirit, to establish the authority of the word of God. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. David wrote in Psalm 119, 89 and said, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven 
And Isaiah 55, 10 to 12 says, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returns not thither, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. If God said it in his word, we can take it to the bank. And I know I already mentioned linking to a lesson on the authority of the word of God on the website. I'm also going to link to a sermon called Why We Trust the Word. Very, very powerful. For today's unedited entry, I want you to bear in mind that the word of God is true. And if it says it, we can trust it. This is an entry about something that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And so today's unedited entry is called All Things. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 all means all. That's all. All means. This is something my principal, Brother Ray Nichols, would say when I was growing up. This verse and this little statement that I grew up hearing have been resurfacing in my brain pretty frequently over the last few weeks. All is every. That is probably not a shocker to most people, but to me in my natural mind, that is mind-blowing, mind-boggling, crazy. The fact that Paul would state that every last thing, all things work together for good is an unfathomable surprise to me. There is no exceptions to all. How is that possible? Personally, I think I label or categorize things. This could be used by God. This could not be used by God. I make two columns and I mentally sort out events. Useful, not useful. But of course, most things go in the useful column. There are some things that in my mind seem that they could never be useful. It seems impossible. But Romans 8.28 entirely deletes the not useful column and boldly proclaims there is only one column. All things work together for good. Really? All? Yes. Every. A prison sentence? A cancer diagnosis? The loss of a loved one? financial ruin, debilitating, ongoing physical pain, a barren womb, personal failure, family crisis, persecution, a forced early retirement, battles for your mind, heart, and soul, divorce. With one line, Paul says, every last thing you will ever face works together for good. He moves every single thing to the useful category. Of course, he lists qualifications. Number one, this is the case for those who love God. Number two, this is the case for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you don't love God or you haven't responded to his call and he does call all, I cannot promise you that all things will go in the useful column. But when you respond to him and answer his call to salvation and begin the journey of walking hand in hand with him, you are qualified for all. 
simple qualifications, a quick disclaimer that must be noted. Paul wrote this verse late in his life. From what I'm reading, Paul wrote these words on his third missionary journey. The Apostle Paul was a man who knew both internal and external struggle. With limited time, I can't say for certain which things he faced before writing, all things work together for good. But from his writings, we know he was a man who suffered, who knew the gut-wrenching pain of hardship. The incredible call of God on his life and the eternal impact of his ministry did not exempt him from the things I'd categorize as not useful. To the church in Corinth, he states, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Repeatedly throughout his letters to churches and individuals, he shares the trials and tests that most of us would think could never be useful. But in spite of the things he faced, he writes, all things work together for good. Really? All, Paul? Yes, all. Battling beasts at Ephesus, frequent imprisonment, being whipped five times, being beaten with rods three times, being shipwrecked, spending a night and a day in the deep, perils in water, of robbers, of your own countrymen, from the heathen, in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, because of false brethren, weariness and painfulness and sleepless nights, going hungry and thirsty, being cold and naked, escaping with and for your life, having a thorn in your flesh and unanswered prayers relating to it, knowing the feeling of personal weakness, parting ways with your longtime ministry partner Barnabas after God had used you together so many times, being forsaken by Demas, fighting your flesh, being stoned and left for dead, imprisonment on more than one occasion, being identified as a prisoner, at times dealing with the guilt of your past, your persecution and torture of Christians, death threats on your life. All these things work together for good. You, as an aging man, can look back over these myriad life experiences and more and say that they have ultimately worked together for good. How is that possible? Number one, Paul says all things work together for good, not all things are good. The two words work together are one Greek word, synergeo, number 4903 in Strong's, which means to work together, to partner, to be a fellow worker, i.e. cooperate. Paul is saying that all these difficulties and challenges, all these trials and hardships on their own are not good, but that when they are compounded together in the life of one who loves God, the mixture is good. When devastating and debilitating events, the unuseful things are mingled and merged, the final results are good. They work together for good. It is not simply the events themselves, but the other things required to make it through the events that bring good. Dependence on God is mixed in and works together. Humility is mixed and works together. Compassion and empathy and anointing are squeezed out by all things. More grace for the trial is mixed in and works together. All things become the ingredients in a life that leaves an impact. All things are not good, but all things work together for good. Number two, Paul had one goal, the spread of the gospel. Paul saw 
how the things that fell under the category of all had advanced his primary mission. To the church at Philippi, he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened unto me has actually served to advance the gospel. The New Living Translation says everything that has happened to me here. Paul could look back at all things and state they worked together for good because he saw how they had advanced the gospel and the kingdom of God. Paul had stopped living for self and was living with a purpose far greater. This was the mindset that allowed him to say all things work together for good. Imprisonment in a Philippian jail with his feet in the stocks? Oh yes, it was good because it worked together with his praise and saw a jailer and his family baptized. Acts 16, 23-33 Paul's perspective took note that all things opened doors for the advancement of the gospel. All things work together for good. Now, a third thing comes to mind. Number three. Paul saw all things working together for good because his eyes were fixed on eternity and not on the here and now. There is a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul conveys his mindset and eternal focus so eloquently. He says this, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being, being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, the all things are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul could endure and see value in all things because he could, through eyes of faith that had an eternal perspective, see their impact on eternity. He saw the invisible but long-lasting effects of all things. Paul could call shipwreck and beatings, personal struggle and weakness, rejection and imprisonment, light afflictions, because his eyes saw past the moment, past the season, into an eternal realm. He could see that all things were producing a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The things he was enduring were something far greater than earthly recognition or human accolades. All things working together were laying up treasure where moth and rust don't corrupt. Matthew 6, 19-20 All things in Paul's life would never see a trophy case in his office, but they would see his life as a trophy of grace in eternity. In 1 Corinthians 9:25, he said, They do it to win a prize that will fade away we do it for an eternal prize. Paul endured through physical and mental pain, emotional anguish, the devastating circumstances, because his goals, his goal was not a human attaboy, but an enduring well done from the one who was his ultimate goal. Like Moses in Hebrews 11:27, he endured as seeing him who was invisible. 
all things work together for good because their effects and results produce a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. One day, we too can look back and see the goodness of God in all things. These seemingly senseless could never be useful to my human mind events and trials and seasons will one day reveal the goodness of God. Every piece and part of my life will work together for good if I place them in God's hands and allow Him to be the author and the finisher of my faith. All things surrendered to His capable hands and all things mixed and melded together will be both for the advance of the gospel and the procurement of an eternal crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25 All things still serve the purpose of a great God. Your things, my things, all things. Delete the not useful column. God works in all things. All things means everything because all means all. That's all all means. Thank you, Brother Nichols, for this life lesson, and thank you, Brother Paul, for putting pen to paper time and again. Thank you for writing to the church what all looks like. In closing, another famous all from Paul. Romans 8 closes by saying this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, all things, final answer. So I just wanted to remind you today that the word of God is the final authority. He is still a restorer. He still heals broken hearts. He still answers prayers. If you see it in his word, you can trust it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to have you here. If you'd like to download a typed or a handwritten transcript of today's entry, you can visit meganedited.com. For now, go grab your journal and your Bible. I look forward to the power of this habit in your life. This is Unedited. This is for you. Happy Friday.